If you have a Bible, please turn to Psalm 23, and uh, we're going to read that together in a moment. And uh, yes, please uh, let the, the kids go to their class now. Thank you, Eddie. All right, let's read Psalm 23 together now. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord is my shepherd. These are some of the most familiar words in the Psalms, indeed in all of scripture. I imagine that many of you, if asked to quote something from the Psalms, would recall these words from Psalm 23, and rightly so, because this is a magnificent poem. It at once confronts the reader with the gentleness, gentleness and compassion of the God of Israel and the lowliness and humility of his people, who are described rather unflatteringly as sheep. It is a picture of a God who is present and near to his people, who cares for their daily needs, who is good and loving, who brings back the lost and restores them, who leads through even the darkest of valleys and who ultimately gives rest and comfort for the length of days. All of what I've just said is more or less clear on a first reading of the psalm. In fact, I remember that this was the first verse that my school had me memorize as a child. And although I did not understand much of what it meant at the time, I was still able to feel a sense of comfort in these words. Now, having said that, I don't think that everything that we'll want to understand about this psalm is immediately clear on the surface. So before we dive more deeply into the meaning of the psalm, let us clarify the meaning of a couple of the more difficult phrases. The first verse we want to clarify is verse 3, where it reads, He restores my soul. The word that is translated soul also refers more broadly to the whole person, that is, to one's being. So we might say, He restores my life, or He brings me back. The reason for thinking that this is a more helpful way of understanding this line is because the metaphor is about a shepherd and his flock. So it seems better to understand this line as saying that a sheep has been lost, but is now being brought back and restored to the safety of the flock. The second line that it would be helpful to clarify from the beginning is verse five. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What does it mean to have a table prepared before you in the presence of your enemies? I think the best way to understand this is as a metaphor of the Lord's vindication of his people. Now, what do I mean by vindication? Think, for example, of someone who is in a court facing false accusations. For this person to be vindicated would mean that they have been shown to be innocent of the false charges 
and for their accusers to have been exposed for the distortions of the truth. For this person, and so to be vindicated, would be to be shown to be in the right. But what does this mean in this situation? Well, we'll develop this more as we move along, but the situation seems to be that the psalmist is speaking about how the Lord is going to show that he is on the side of the psalmist, who in this case is arguably speaking on behalf of all of Israel. In other words, there will come a time when the Lord will deliver his people and in so doing will defeat their enemies and so prove that he is the God of Israel and indeed of the whole world. Again, we'll be, have more to say about this later on, but for now we just need to understand that to prepare a table in the presence of one enemies is, one's enemies is a poetic way of saying that someone is being honored in front of their enemies. At this point, I think if we were to stop, you would all be able to pray and understand the words of Psalm 23. Why not stop here? We could end and set the record for the shortest sermon in embassy history. So why go further? I would liken this to the difference between looking at a picture of a breathtaking view from the top of a mountain versus climbing to see it for yourself. In the first case, you may be able to recognize the view and even appreciate it, but you will not have experienced it in the same way as if you had climbed it for yourself. As Pastor Phil mentioned at the beginning of this preaching series on the Psalms, part of the goal is to help all of us to be able to read, meditate, and pray the Psalms for ourselves. So I hope that this morning you will do your best to follow along on this journey so that you can see the view for yourself. We're going to spend much of our time trying to understand a particular story. It is the story of God in Israel, and it is the story that is implicit in Psalm 23 and runs throughout much of Scripture. Now, this might seem like a strange thing to do. I mean, why bother understanding an old story? Why not just tell us what the psalm means and how it applies to us? That is a fair question, and I would like to address it briefly before moving on. The reason we need to try to understand a particular story is because to say, the Lord is my shepherd, is not first and foremost a proposition. It is a metaphor, a story. It means so much more than the Lord is the one who watches over and protects me, who provides for me and leads me to safety. All of these statements are true, but when we try to distill this psalm down into propositions, I'm afraid we may be missing much of the point. The point of this psalm, as we shall see, was not primarily so that we might know true things about God. Although I think we can learn true things about God through this psalm. Rather, the point of this psalm was so that in the very act of recounting the story it expresses, the hearts and minds of those repeating it and those hearing it might be transformed by the hope that it holds out and by the compassion of the love whose God, of the God whose love it proclaims. Let me say that again. The point of this psalm is to be transformed by the hope and the love of God. We are now ready to move to understanding the story of the Lord as shepherd. In order to delve more deeply into this psalm and the story it tells, we're going to split the rest of our time between two tasks. The first thing we want to understand is, given this picture of the Lord as the shepherd in Psalm 23, how was this image understood and applied at the time when it was written? In other words, how I want us to think about this is, how would an ancient Israelite have prayed this psalm? What would they have meant? what stories and feelings would have been associated with it, and so on. That is the first task. 
Then the second thing we want to understand is, given how the Lord as shepherd was understood in the Old Testament, how did Jesus apply this psalm to himself? We know that Jesus called himself the good shepherd. What did he mean by this? Why choose this metaphor to describe who he was and what he was doing in the world? So then, these will be our two goals. First, what is the meaning of the shepherd tradition in the Old Testament? Second, how and why then does Jesus apply this to explain who he is and what he is doing? First, what is the meaning of the shepherd tradition in the Old Testament? This may also seem at first glance like a strange question. Why not just try to tell us what the meaning of the shepherd imagery is in Psalm 23? And that's a good question. The reason is though that the author of Psalm 23 is drawing on a well-known metaphor, one that portrays their God as shepherd in order to give the people of Israel hope in the Lord as the one who leads his people safely out of exile and back into the land he has promised them. So what do we mean by call, calling it the shepherd tradition in the Old Testament? What I mean here is there are other passages in the Old Testament that take this idea of God as Israel's shepherd. One of the clearest of these is Psalm 78. This is a lengthy psalm centering around the Exodus story. It recalls how God led his people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them safely to their own land. Psalm 78:52 reads, Then he led out his people like sheep, and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Psalm 77 and 80 also use similar language to describe God's deliverance of Israel in the Exodus. So from a few of these shorter references to the Lord as Israel's shepherd, we're able to observe that the language is used to speak of God rescuing his people and leading them into the land he has promised them. More specifically though, there are three longer passages that employ the language of God as Israel's shepherd. The interesting thing about all of these is that they use the imagery in the same way to tell a very similar story and to make the same point about God. The three passages are Jeremiah 23, 1-8, Ezekiel chapter 34, which was our scripture reading, and Zechariah chapter 10. For our purposes now, though, I want us to just focus in more closely on one of those. The passage we will more closely examine is Ezekiel 34. And given the length of this passage and the fact that Sybil already read it, we're not going to read any of it again. I simply want to draw out some of the main themes of this passage, noting their connection to Psalm 23. And again, let's recall that the goal of doing this is to give a reasonable answer to the question of how an ancient Israelite would have prayed and understood the words and imagery of this psalm. So here are the key themes of Ezekiel 34. Verses 1 to 9. These are about bad shepherds. That is, they're about bad rulers. One of the most important things to highlight about the shepherd language in the Bible is that it often refers to rulers, to kings. So when in this passage we find a condemnation of the shepherds of Israel, we know at once that this means the rulers of Israel. This is confirmed by verse 4, which says, The lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. This is a condemnation of unjust rulers, rulers who oppose the people who are placed, who oppress the people who are placed under their protection. What the shepherd imagery draws out so well is the helplessness of the people, the flock, against the ruthless shepherds. Rather than feeding the sheep, they eat them. Talk about a perversion of authority. What is more contrary than eat, a shepherd eating their own sheep or, by analogy, a ruler harming their own people? So we can see from this passage that 
To call the Lord your shepherd is to say that he is the true king over against these other shepherds and rulers, especially those who are wicked. In verses 10 to 16, the story develops further. Not only has the Lord seen what is happening, the injustice that is being committed, and not only has he heard the desperate cries of his people, but he says he's actually going to do something about it. The Lord declares, I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from the places where they have been scattered. Notice the imagery used here and its connection to Psalm 23. The Lord says, I will feed them with good pasture, and there they shall lie down in good grazing land and rich pasture. And again, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, declares the Lord. Clearly, the language and imagery here is very similar to Psalm 23, verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. One other thing I want to draw our attention to in this passage is the language of scattering and gathering in verses 11 to 13. What does this mean? The first thing we need to understand to get this meaning is that Israel was in captivity in Babylon. They were in exile. In short, what had happened was that the Babylonians came and captured the people of Israel, removing them from their own land and bringing them as a conquered people back to Babylon. While we cannot know for certain the dating of Psalm 23, it is very likely that the final form of it was written and composed during Babylonian exile. And so far from our study of the shepherd tradition in the Old Testament, we're make, able to make another important observation. Just as various retellings of God's rescue of his people during the Exodus used the language of the Lord, the shepherd of his people, so now we can see it's used in a very similar way to speak of the hope that the Lord will lead his people out of exile in Babylon and restore them to their own land. In other words, simply put, the language of the Lord as shepherd is language about deliverance. To say the Lord is my shepherd then is at once to recall to mind his faithfulness in rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. All this to say that although circumstances seemed hopeless, to call out to the Lord with the words, the Lord is my shepherd, was to stand firm against utter despair and to look with hope-filled longing at a time when the Lord would act to rescue his people from their dark and dire situation. To say that the Lord is my shepherd, then, is an exercise of hope despite appearances in the present. Let us pause here for a moment and consider how this applies to us. It is certainly easy to forget that the people who prayed these hopeful words were the victims of unspeakable horrors. If you want to get a feeling of the atrocity and savagery of ancient warfare, you need look no further than lamentations for a vivid description of some of these things. My point in mentioning that is only to emphasize that the very people who are praying, the Lord is my shepherd, and who are believing in his promises to rescue and restore them, are perhaps the very people who had the most reason to doubt whether God did care, whether he would really act to deliver his people. But they continued to hope, despite the fact that all of their experience testified to the contrary. You may be facing a situation right now that feels so desperate, you simply cannot believe that the Lord would help you or that he even cares. If that is you, my friend, be strengthened to persevere in the knowledge that if the Lord is your shepherd, he will surely not only lead you out of the dark valley you're in, but he will find you. And though you be too weak to walk back, he will take you in his arms 
and carry you back himself. He is the good shepherd. From the remainder of Ezekiel 34, verses 17 to 31, I just want to draw our attention to one last element of the shepherd imagery, which we have hinted at so far. We just discussed what it would mean that God's, what it meant that God's people were scattered. But now we want to know what it means when his people will be gathered. The scattering of the people was, as we noted, the result of wicked shepherds oppressing his people and leading them astray, ultimately culminating in their exile in Babylon. Now, in verses 17 to 31, we find that when the Lord gathers his people back and delivers them from all the places that they've been scattered, he's going to bring them back to the land he's promised them and bless them in every way. Let me read two verses of this stunning promise. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and all the places around my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. So now let us sum up the meaning of what we've said about the shepherd imagery from Ezekiel 34 with our three main points. First, to say the Lord is my shepherd is to say that he is the true shepherd and that the wicked shepherds are not. Second, to say the Lord is my shepherd is to stand firm in hope of the Lord's deliverance. In this case, deliverance of his people from Babylonian exile. Third, to say the Lord is my shepherd is to believe that the Lord will bless and restore his people. We will summarize these three points even further going forward as one, condemn, two, hope, and three, blessing. We are now in a position to return to Psalm 23 and to answer the first question that we asked at the beginning, which is, what would an ancient Israelite have thought and felt when they prayed the words of Psalm 23? In order to help us bring this to life, I thought it might be helpful to structure this in the form of a prayer. So here's my attempt to pray this psalm in the way that an ancient Israelite would have understand it, and in light of what we have just gone through from Ezekiel 34. Lord, you are our true shepherd and king. And although we are ruled by wicked people right now, we know that you are the one who truly rules the world. And we trust that you will provide everything that we need. We will lack nothing. Just as you delivered your people with a mighty hand in the days of the Exodus, freeing them from slavery, so you will do that now when you lead us as a flock out of our current captivity. You will give us rest and prosperity. You will lead us to green pastures and still waters. You will restore our very lives, and you will bring us back and restore us to the land you have promised. Even though we are in this valley of the shadow of death, this exile, this slavery, we know that you are with us, and we need not be afraid. You hold your rod and your staff, both to guide us and to protect us from enemies that may attack. You will prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies, our captors, the Babylonians. You will prove once and for all that you are our God and we are your people. You will vindicate us and we will no longer be mocked by the nations. You will comfort us and we will be honored guests at your table as you anoint our heads and fill our cups to the brim. We know that although we have broken our covenant with you and as a result we have brought curses on ourselves, we trust that only the goodness and mercy of your covenant blessings will follow us and you will bring us back to your temple to be with, to be in your presence for the rest of our days. 
Amen. I hope that at this point you are able to see the main contours of this story. This was the great story, the great hope that fueled many of the Psalms and the other writings of the Old Testament, and it was alive and well in Jesus' day. God would act to rescue his people from their enemies, from their exile. He would restore the fortunes of his people and bring them back to the land he had promised them, blessing them and prospering them in every way. We are now going to move on to our second question and spend the rest of our time here. The question is, given how this psalm and its imagery was understood by its ancient Jewish audience, what did Jesus mean when he called himself the Good Shepherd? In order to answer this question, the passage we're going to be looking at is in John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. If you have a Bible, please turn there. As we look at this passage, we're going to use the three points that we just outlined from Ezekiel and Psalm 23 about the meaning of the shepherd tradition in the Old Testament in order to compare them with how Jesus uses the language of the Good Shepherd. The three points, as we stated earlier, are condemn, hope, and blessing. So first, based on our study of the shepherd tradition in the Old Testament, we would expect to find a condemnation of wicked shepherds in Jesus' use of the shepherd language. But do we find this? To understand this point, we want to look more closely at the context of the passage in John chapter 10. So here's a quick recap. In John chapter 9, Jesus healed a man who was born blind. And some of the Pharisees are very upset about this because Jesus did this on the Sabbath, which in their interpretation of the law meant he violated the Sabbath, which was one of the Ten Commandments. There then follows an exchange between the Pharisees and others about the man who was healed. In a somewhat comic turn of events, they even interview the fully grown man's parents. The conclusion that the Pharisees reach is that Jesus cannot be a messenger from God because he did this on the Sabbath. It is in response to this that Jesus goes on to tell a series of stories, using shepherd imagery and culminating in him calling himself the Good Shepherd. But how do we know that this is the same episode and not separate from the healing of the blind man? Well, if you look down at chapter 10, verse 21, we can see that this whole time the question has still been, is Jesus on the side of God or is he on the side of evil spirits? Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So it is this question which frames this entire account of the Good Shepherd. Now, some of you may be wondering at this point what any of this has to do with what we've talked about so far from Ezekiel 34 and Psalm 23. The answer is that it has everything to do with those passages because what Jesus says here assumes the entire story that we've developed up to this point. Just as in Ezekiel 34, one of the things that it meant to say the Lord is my shepherd is to speak an implicit word of judgment against those who would call themselves shepherds but are actually wicked rulers. Let me try to clarify this. Ezekiel 34 speaks of shepherds or rulers who do not care for them, who only care for themselves and not for the people that they rule. Now, as we saw, Jesus is in a situation where he is being accused of being evil by the current rulers precisely because he healed someone. Do you see what is going on? Jesus calls himself the good shepherd in part because in so doing, he is condemning those who would call themselves shepherds or rulers, but who actually use their position to oppress people to rule unjustly, and even to wish that someone had remained blind 
rather than be healed. So, as we expected, Jesus draws on the shepherd tradition from the Old Testament to condemn unjust rulers. But this is only one reason why Jesus calls himself the Good Shepherd. Let us turn to the second point under the meaning of the Good Shepherd tradition and compare it with Jesus' words. In Ezekiel and Psalm 23, we also saw that to say the Lord is my shepherd is to hope in the Lord's deliverance, specifically deliverance of his people from Babylonian exile. But is that what Jesus is talking about now? Well, we know it can't be exactly what Jesus is talking about because the Jewish people are no longer in exile in Babylon. They're back in the promised land, but now they're being ruled by others, by Rome. Although we don't have time to elaborate on this here, we need to be aware that one of the biggest problems that many Jewish people at the time of Jesus thought they had was that they were being ruled by other nations. It was largely believed that when God acted as the good shepherd to deliver his people, he would rescue them from their foreign oppressors. This was what rescue from enemies meant to many of Jesus' contemporaries. But what did it mean to Jesus? To answer this question, let's read the relevant section from chapter 10, verses 11 through 15. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Let's unpack this passage in order to try to answer the question, how does Jesus talk about rescuing his people? To begin, let's understand the various characters in the story. Well, the hired hands, there's the hired hands and the wolf. And they, when they see the wolf, they run away. They don't actually care about the sheep. We should now have no trouble identifying these with the religious rulers that Jesus is confronting. But now what about the wolf? Could this be Rome? That would certainly be one of the most natural interpretations in Jesus' day. After all, they were the great and most visible enemy at that time. But that doesn't seem to be who Jesus had in mind. Although he doesn't tell us exactly, even so, I think there's one strong hint in the passage that will help us figure it out. The clue is in verse 15. I lay down my life for the sheep. Whatever the wolf represents, the way it is going to be defeated is by the shepherd, that is Jesus, laying down his life to rescue the sheep. At this, point, as, at this point, as we have said, Jesus did not define the enemy as Rome, which we might have expected. Instead, he defines the enemy as a wolf that will be defeated through his own death. But who or what is the wolf? Unfortunately, Jesus doesn't tell us explicitly. But we can now make a very important observation that will allow us to answer this later on. That observation is this. The victory of the shepherd over the wolf is going to come through Jesus' own death. In other words, Jesus has then redefined the victory of God over Israel's enemies as being achieved through his own death. But how could this be? How could death be a victory? Before we give a full answer to this question, I want us to meditate on how paradoxical this is. As we have mentioned throughout, the hope was that God would rescue Israel 
from their enemies with power, specifically with military victory. Remember the words of Psalm 2, that great kingly psalm. In speaking of the future king and how he would act against Israel's enemies, it says, he will break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces with a pot, like a potter's vessel. But notice this. Jesus did not achieve his victory as a warrior with a rod of iron. Instead, he exchanged the rod of a warrior for the rod of a shepherd. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. As the good shepherd, Jesus did before what no one could have expected. He won the victory over his enemies by giving himself completely in an utterly actly cost of love. This was Jesus' victory. Let us pause and consider this. In what ways are you trying to achieve victories in your own life? Is it through giving yourself in earnestly seeking the well-being of others? Is it through costly, self-sacrificial love? Let me go a step further and try to be more specific here. What if the next time you found yourself in a conflict with your spouse, your parents, your children, or someone at work, you asked yourself this question, how could I die to myself in order to sacrificially love this person. If that sounds unpleasant to you, you're right. The language of dying is not strictly metaphorical. If you do this, you will be, in a very real sense, dying. So why would you want to do that? Because, as we shall see from the Good Shepherd, it is only in passing through death that new life is possible. So what if this became a habit of your heart, a sort of reflex that you had where instead of first considering what would be best for you, you trained yourself over many years to genuinely consider seeking what was best for those around you. You can start today. Think of it this way. Each decision you make will either make you a more selfless person or a more selfish one. The path the Good Shepherd leads passes through the valley of death but it leads to the greenest of pastures. Will you follow him? Let us now turn and consider the final point of comparison between Ezekiel 34 and Psalm 23 and the words of Jesus. The third element of the shepherd's story is blessing and restoration. So what does Jesus say about this? The language of the shepherd in the Old Testament was about the hope that God would finally act to rescue his people from their exile and restore them to their land and bless them. It is essential for us to understand at this point what Jesus is saying. By Jesus calling himself the good shepherd, he means at least two things. First, to put this as plainly as possible, Jesus is saying that Israel's exile is over. Again, as we have seen, the shepherd tradition in all of its most significant instances is used to talk about God rescuing his people and bringing an end to their various forms of exile. But look around. The Romans are still in power. Things are still really bad. It doesn't seem like God is fulfilling his promises for deliverance and restoration. Yet this is precisely what Jesus is saying by calling himself the good shepherd. In addition to Jesus claiming that Israel's exile is over, Jesus is using an expression that is only used to talk about God. In other words, Jesus is using a well-known metaphor in Jewish tradition about God rescuing his people in order to explain what he himself is doing. 
Jesus is saying that he is fulfilling God's promises for deliverance and restoration. But how is God fulfilling these promises? As we already noted, Rome is not defeated. Israel is not prospering back in their land. So what can Jesus mean by this? How is God delivering and restoring his people? Jesus' answer? Resurrection. Let us look closely at the words of Jesus about resurrection in verses 15 to 18. I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. As we just saw a moment ago, Jesus redefined God's victory over his enemies as coming through his own death. Now he makes the equally startling claim that the restoration that God has promised his people is all the way back from Ezekiel 34 and Psalm 23 is going to come not through God liberating his people from Babylon or Rome or leading them into their own land. Rather, God's restoration is going to come through Jesus laying down his own life precisely so that he may take it up again. Or we might say it like this, that for Jesus, the deliverance of God is a deliverance through death itself and into new creation. God's deliverance is resurrection. I want to clarify at this point a common misconception, and it is one that was shared by Jesus' Jewish audience as well. It is this, when we hear about resurrection, we most naturally think about something that will happen to some people at the end of time. This was one of the more common Jewish expectations of Jesus' day. In other words, resurrection was something that would happen at the end of history. This was probably what Jesus' hearers thought when they heard these words. They would have thought, well, of course, the righteous will be raised. Everyone knows that. But this is not what Jesus is talking about. He was not talking about something that would happen to some people at the end of history. Rather, he was speaking about what would happen to himself in the middle of history. Now, why is this important to understand? It's important because, for Jesus, resurrection was not a far-off future hope. It was a present reality that demonstrated that God was doing something radically new. The Lord was indeed acting to rescue and restore his people, not only the nation of Israel, but the very creation itself. What I'm trying to say is that Jesus' resurrection meant God's new creation. It meant that God's promise to remake the world was beginning right then and there. Let us return to this text. And based on what we have seen Jesus say about resurrection, we're now able to identify the wolf from earlier. If Jesus is going to defeat the wolf through his death and resurrection, then we can confidently say that the enemy that Jesus has in mind is death itself. Death is not the enemy only because it ends life, but because death is the force of anti-creation that now permeates and poisons all of life. Jesus saw this and knew that the problem of Israel was not primarily that they were oppressed by Babylon or Rome, although these were symptoms of a deeper problem. Instead, Jesus saw more deeply into the human condition and saw that it was death and sin that were the real great enemies of God. When we as humans turn away from God, we give the authority that God has created for us over to death, to darkness, to sin. 
And so death rules over us, as Paul puts it, instead of us ruling over God's creation. Jesus understood that because the deeper cause of Israel's exile was their own sin and corruption and the death that resulted from that sin, that it would not be enough to end Israel's exile unless these true enemies were defeated. But in order to defeat death, Jesus needed first to die. And so we see that Jesus is the good shepherd precisely because he is the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. And so Jesus, as the good shepherd, laid down his life so that he could take it up again and lead us into the new creation with him. I said early on that the point of this psalm was so that in the very act of recounting the story it expresses, the hearts and minds of those repeating it and those hearing it might be transformed by the hope that it holds out and by the compassion of the God whose love it proclaims. So I hope you don't get lost in all these details and miss the forest for the trees. After all, you may know all the reasons why Jesus calls himself the Good Shepherd, but will you follow him? Will you trust that he will lead you on the right path, even though that path takes you through the deep, dark valleys? Jesus wants to bring you to new life, but the only path is the one that he opened through his own death. It is scary. No one can see what's on the other side. There are wolves and thieves along the way, not to mention bad shepherds. They'll threaten to harm you, and they'll tear you away from him if they can. But you look ahead and you see Jesus leading the way. His rod and his staff, they will comfort you. When you fall, he will pick you up. When you get lost, he will search for you. Even now, Jesus searches for his lost sheep. Maybe it seems like he doesn't hear you, or that you're too far lost, and he would never think to come by the way that you've gone. But he is coming, and he will find you, and bring you back to the safety of the flock. He has left the rest of the flock behind in order to search for you. You may be in very bad condition when he finds you, but take heart. He will nurse you back to health. He will give even of his own very life for his sheep. He is the good shepherd. Follow him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our good shepherd. We trust that just as you rescued your people out of slavery in Egypt, so now you will rescue us from our slavery to sin and death. You will lead us to the green pastures and still waters of the new creation that you have begun with your resurrection. You will bring us back like lost sheep from our wandering. You gather us and return us to the safety of the fold. You lead us in paths of righteousness and justice the path you walked all the way to your own death, the act that showed your boundless love for us. You yourself passed through the valley of death, and we trust that you will be with us in passing through the darkest of deaths. We will not fear any evil because you are with us. You have prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Death and sin have no power any longer. You anoint our heads and treat us as honored guests at your royal table. You even welcome us as children of the King. Surely goodness and mercy will pursue us, and we will dwell with you, Jesus, forever. Amen.